This week on the Sports Initiative podcast, I sit down with international NBA scout Jason Philippi. He discusses his work with the likes of Miami Heat and San Antonio Spurs, the process of being a scout and what they look for when on assignment, and the importance of environmental fit when recommending a player. As always, if you enjoy this podcast, please make sure you share it with friends and family. I hope you enjoy. So Jason, really appreciate you spending a bit of your uh, afternoon with me. How are things your end? Are you all safe and well? I'm safe and well, safe and well. You know, still, uh, you know, going to see games, uh, you know, as much as I can, despite, you know, all the uh, travel restrictions and, you know, just the hassle of, you know, going around uh, seeing games uh, and all and, you know, budget restrictions for that matter. But anyways, I'm trying to stay in the loop because like I said, this is the business I've chosen and, uh, you know, I really like what I'm doing. So I you know, like to continue doing this, you know, whatever capacity I can. Perfect. So yeah, this is a really exciting podcast for me. So, cause I'm a San Antonio Spurs fan. So we've gone through our uh, good years. We're on a bit of a decline at the moment, yeah. but it, you can't have 27 straight years on the playoffs. I mean, you know, you can't. It was due. It was due. So, it was, um, but I'm, um, yeah, I'm really excited to kind of dig a little bit deeper in terms of what what the recruitment department and stuff of basketball looks like and the culture of it and stuff. So, for individuals that maybe don't know you and haven't come across your work, do you just want to give us a bit of a whistle stop tour of um, what you do and then yeah. where you've done it previously and where you do it now? Well, I mean, uh, long story short, I've been working in professional basketball uh, for the last uh, 26 years. Um, I originally started off when I was still in college. I just worked for a local uh, television station. I was a uh, one of the color commentators and uh, co-hosts of a you know basketball themed uh, show here in Bologna, Italy, where I live. And it was just local television, but that was kind of you know my um, my gateway to the professional basketball world because, you know, even though it was, you know, uh, a local TV, you know, like I said, I got to meet a lot of important basketball people. Um, and, you know, I met agents, general managers, players uh, and all uh, players that I would often interview. And anyways, like I said, it was just, you know, kind of a um, progression from that point. I worked briefly as a sports agent uh, in Italy, but uh, to be totally honest, that was not a great experience. I just, you know, I, I quickly discovered that even though I thought it would be super cool, that after about two years, that that might not have been my, you know, path. You know, I, like I said, uh, uh, it was interesting, but I don't think I had what it takes. I mean that, you know, very honestly, and I'm totally okay with that. The thing is, though, that doing, you know, while doing that, that is where I kind of hooked up with you know, people in the basketball world, specifically, not only, but specifically the, the, um, the NBA, because just to give you a time frame, we're talking about 1998. So my goodness, you know, a long time ago, a lifetime ago. Um, anyways, I was still young and handsome. And um, uh, anyways, I was meeting all these NBA people when I, while I was working as an agent, and I mean important NBA people. Remember, 1998, that was when the Euro craze began. You know, that was when 
you know, the following year, 1999 was the year that, you know, guys like Tony Parker, Andre Kirilenko, uh, Paul Gasol, that caliber player were drafted. And, you know, at the, in that moment, only a handful of NBA teams had a scouts. Within, you know, two years after that, every team had a scout. So anyways, for one of the few times in my life, I was at the right place at the right time. Um, you know, my brother, my brother, Adam, who's currently working in basketball too, he's actually a pro scout with the Sacramento Kings right now. Um, but he, um, you know, was doing some consulting both for a local team as well as for an NBA team, the New Jersey Nets. And anyways, long story short, you know, he kind of had the idea, say, hey, let's do, try to offer a consulting service to NBA teams because, you know, every time I went to these events and often I was with my brother, teams, you know, general managers of teams would be asking us about players and, you know, got to the part that some almost felt guilty. We're saying, hey, Jason, you know, sorry to bother you again, but I was thinking, you know, I spoke with my boss, you know, we can actually pay you to do some consulting for us. And anyways, one thing led to another. My brother and I, we started this international scouting service, uh, which was kind of the first of its kind geared specifically, specifically for NBA teams. Um, like I said, it was at the beginning of the Euro craze and, you know, we signed four teams literally within a day and, um, you know, we did it for a couple of years. My brother, Adam actually then went on to work for the Lakers who were a client. I continued to do the service myself on my own for a couple more years. And I peaked, I peaked at 10 teams. So at one point, one third of the NBA uh, I was consulting for one third, one out of three NBA teams I was consulting with. And anyways, after a couple more years, the Portland Trailblazers, uh, so this is 2004, the Portland Trailblazers, who were one of my clients also, they asked me to work exclusively for them. And like I said, they, they like say, uh, they may be an offer I could have refused, let's put it that way. So the time had come for me to, uh, you know, migrate from being a mere scouting consultant to, uh, you know, becoming a full-time, you know, lead scout, international scout for an NBA team. Anyways, and like I said, I worked for, with Portland for over 10 years. Um, and, you know, uh, after managerial change, I was let go, but I hooked up with the Miami Heat as a consultant. Uh, Miami was one of my former clients too, so it's not a surprise that I hooked up with Miami. And uh, after that, the Detroit Pistons, so this is... 2015, 2016, I don't even remember, uh, the Detroit Pistons, which were looking for, you know, a full-time NBA scout because their previous scout had uh, left the team to become a general manager in Europe. Um, there was an opening there. And um, so, you know, they hired me. I consulted for the Detroit Pistons for three more years. Unfortunately, you know, when uh, Stan Van Gundy and his staff were let go, I was one of the many casualties there. And anyways, so for the past three years, you know, I've just been, you know, trying to stay in the loop and uh, in the hope of hooking up with another NBA team. But obviously, you know, I, you know, I've spoken, done a little consulting, not much, but for, you know, European uh, teams for that matter. Uh, unfortunately, though, the COVID situation obviously hasn't helped because, you know, most teams, not just the NBA teams, obviously have, number one, cut their budgets. So they're certainly not going to hire new personnel, you know, regardless of whether it's, you know, scouting, coaching, or management. And, you know, it's just been harder to see games, you know, due to the travel restrictions. And it's also been harder to meet people because sometimes I go to a game, but we're all masks, we're all relegated to a certain area. 
Uh, we can't get up and walk around and, you know, meet and greet people. You know, we're supposed to stay in our seat with our masks on, you know, no eating, no drinking, no, uh, like I said, you know, uh, meeting you. So that's become kind of a problem. But anyways, like I said, um, I'm doing some, you know, trying to do some consulting here and there. Uh, I am a, uh, you know, a scout analyst, writer, contributor for, you know, various websites. Uh, I'm currently um, the, you know, lead international scout for the pro insight perspective insights.com uh, as well as a regular contributor for basketballnews.com uh, among others and you know, i do some freelance work here and there and obviously you know whenever i go to games i always you know tweet you know something about what i'm seeing so anyways i know you said to do a brief presentation that was you know Certainly not brief, but I hope that gives you a better idea of my uh, extensive background. You know, I've basically worked, you know, in pro basketball in different capacities for most of my adult life. You know, I was still in college when I started to work, you know, for the TV station. So, and like I said, it's been most of my adult life that I've been involved in basketball. And this, despite having a business degree, never used my business degree, but, you know, I'm happy that things have gone this way. No, perfect. I think it gives a really nice oversight as to, you know, what you've done previously and maybe some experiences for us to dig a little bit deeper into. So I guess the first question for me, um, which is if you're going to a game to watch a specific individual. Um, so, you know, this individual has been highlighted by one of your contacts and you're going in to do a report on this specific individual. What does that process actually look like for an MBA scout? So what due diligence are you doing prior? What are you looking for whilst you're there? And then what does the actual evaluation at the back end of that look like? First of all, I mean, if you're scouting players, it's the process and the principles are not very different, whether you're scouting for an NBA team or a college team or a European team or a youth level team. I mean, the principles and the process are pretty much the same, actually, you know, they don't really change. Obviously, you're going to be looking at a different type of player. You know, what I found is that when I was, it was much easier to scout for an NBA team because there are fewer players to scout. Not that I, you know, I scouted tons of players when I was with NBA teams, but at any given game, there were only a couple of guys. When I'm scouting a youth level team, you know, the under 16, under 18s for a, a college, you know, to the, the Pro Insight, you know, for example, website that I work for, their clientele is uh, mostly college teams. And, you know, most of these young players, I mean, every, every under, every kid from the Real Madrid under 18 is a Division One college player. Now, only a handful of them are legitimate NBA prospects, but everyone, every single one, their 10th man, you know, the last guy on the bench, he's good enough to play Division One. They're that good. So, Obviously, you know, when I was working for an NBA team, I'd write up three or four guys from Real Madrid. Now I write up literally the whole team. So that obviously is, a, you know, a problematic because sometimes, you know, I have to make concessions and say, okay, today I'm just going to focus on these guys. I can't, you know, follow 10 guys. You know, uh, ideally I'll scout three or four guys. You know, sometimes I'll scout seven or eight, but, you know, there's a breakoff point where I feel that, you know, Diverting too much energy to too many players affects, you know, my uh, judgment. So I just have to, you know, like I said, you know, it's just okay. Today I have to focus on these guys. Next time I'll see this team again. Anyways, but, you know, so your original question, though, what are you looking for? You know, obviously the players I see, in most cases, I know who I'm going to see. I mean, that's my job. 
you know, I'm supposed to know who I have to see. You know, my my employer shouldn't have to tell me who to go to see. I'm the one that says we need to see. I need to see it on your behalf. You know, you guys have to, you know, put it in the budget that I have to travel to this, you know, place where I need to go to see um, those players. Obviously, though, you know, sure, I do have, you know, contacts, whether they're coaches, agents, friends who will give me tips, you know, once in a while. In most cases, you know, I like to say that I always know the player. It's rarely ever happened that I didn't know the player. And of course, sometimes, you know, it's often that people will say, oh, Jason, I guess, especially agents, especially agents. Oh, Jason, I have this kid. He's unbelievable. He's, you know, an NBA player. But well, you know, agents, they're not very objective. So, you know, I'll try my best out of, out of respect, you know, to say, okay, yeah, we can fit it in. You know, if you, you know, in fact, if you, if you, you know, if you, we go to the game together and you're going to drive me to see him before the game or whatever, absolutely you know let's let's do it like i said i don't want to you know i have to you know i i, I don't want to you know leave any stone unturned because uh the truth is though that you know more often than not it's a waste of time but once again you know it's my job because you know, i have to you know uh, i have to cover all my bases i can't take any chances uh, more often though you know people whether it's an agent or not somebody will send me a link to a, a, a website to some game streaming or whatever or highlights and i will you know occasionally you know sometimes you know an interesting story that i like to tell regards Giannis atetokounmpo the greek freak now Giannis is the outlier of outliers he is was the exception to the rule that was the rare truly you know great player that people like myself did not know before like I said, anybody who's an NBA prospect, I usually know before, and I don't need you to tell me to go see him, you know. But he was the exception to the rule because, you know, his, he, like I said, it's, well, he's a Hollywood, Hollywood movie that is currently being made, literally. You know, Giannis, you know, he was a refugee from, uh, from Africa. Uh, he was an illegal immigrant. You know, he couldn't play, you know, uh, even he couldn't play, you know, in a professional league or even a you know, a semi-pro league because he didn't have the documentation. He was a legal immigrant. So, you know, what happened is that this happened many times. An agent, he would send me like, oh, Jason, hey, how's it going? And any NBA, most other international NBA scouts who were working on that period uh, when Giannis Antetokounmpo was, uh, you know, drafted, they will tell you a similar story. His agent contacted him and said, hey, how's it going? Listen, I have this kid, unbelievable, freak of nature blah, blah, blah. Here's some video on him. I was like, okay, Yargos, sure. You know, you know how many agents that same day or the day before I called with the same thing. And sooner or later, sooner or later, I'll maybe watch the link they send me even for just a couple minutes. And, you know, usually after two minutes, I can see, okay, this guy's not an NBA caliber player. But with Giannis, I have to say, I look, okay, wow. Man, is he that tall? I said, are his arms that long? So I watched five minutes, 10 minutes. And then of course I was saying, okay, but he's playing literally against amateur competition. You know, he was playing, like I said, he was playing against, uh, it was like I said, it was an amateur level. It was not a pro league, it was like third division. He was playing against guys who had day jobs. Like I said, they, uh, they were not professionals. Uh, so obviously, you know, that the context there, the competition level obviously, you know, uh, made what I was seeing not, 
not as as impressive as it was at first glance. But um, then though, I, like I said, he did things though that I like. Okay, hey, I can't do that. A lot of guys can't do that in an empty gym. I mean, you know, his athleticism and length though were unbelievable. And I have to say, his feel for the game was better than I thought, considering the background of you know, well, never having played organized basketball until then. Anyways, long story short though. Um, I made the trip, you know, to, so this was like January of the year he was drafted. No one knew him. Uh, February, a couple teams went to see him. I went uh, beginning of March. And like I said, there were many other scouts there too, pretty much most who had followed the same, you know, uh, itinerary I did, you know, through like, okay, sure, I'll take a look at him, whatever. And like, oh, wow, okay, hmm. I need to see more here. Uh, Okay. And anyways, I went and like I said, just you know, seeing him up close, you know, just you know, those long arms and everything. I said, oh my God, this guy's a freak of nature. Freak of nature. That is you know, the correct term because he was. And, um, you know, like I said, now when I have drafted him at number 15, 16, 18, wherever the Milwaukee Bucks drafted him, I'm not that sure. I, I, I'm, I am surprised. I knew Giannis had the potential to be an NBA player and a good one too, but that he would be the MVP of the league, absolutely not. Absolutely not. And, you know, like I said, Giannis was not, you know, what he is in day one. It's not like Luka Doncic, who was the best player on his team as a rookie. Giannis, you know, he came off the bench as a rookie. Obviously, they love his potential. I mean, Giannis, it took him three or four years, you know, to become an all-star caliber player and another, you know, couple years. I think Giannis has been in the league now seven, eight years. You know, but uh, it was a process. You know, he did an average 30 points from day one. But like I said, it's incredible the progression he's made. So I never thought he would have become that good. Um, so anyways, you know, like I said, you know, I usually know who I have to see. I usually know I have to see. Obviously my focus is, you know, main focus working for an NBA team is the young players, players that are still uh, draftable. But, you know, I do, you know, I did scout also free agents, you know, veteran, uh, veteran European players, as well as American guys playing overseas. Um, and I probably did that more and more, you know, over the course of my career, even though always my number one focus, my bread and butter was and always, always will probably be uh, younger players, players that I said under age 22 players that are still eligible to declare for the NBA draft. And right now I'm going, going even younger because, you know, I'm looking at players that are about like age 16, if not even younger, players that are eligible to go to college in the United States also. So like I said, the workload is just increasing. I'm just looking at more and more players and you know, getting younger and younger, you know, uh, every, every year now. And anyways, um, you know, uh, what do I look at? Long story. I mean, the first, the first, there are many things. The first thing is the most obvious thing, just physical characteristics. I mean, that's the first thing I see and especially for the NBA, but you know, not, not only, but in, for the NBA even more so, if you don't have the right body type, no matter how good you are, you're not an NBA player. You know, you can have exceptions of so-and-so who was short and small, but like I said, they're exceptions. Um, but, you know, for most players, I mean, the obvious comparison, you know, just, you know, look, you know, uh, see, you know, just look at his body type, you know, his, his height for his position, his um Wingspan is very important. You know, I didn't understand why when I first started scouting, but I do understand why for so many teams, wingspan is very, very important. You know, having long arms. Why is um, that? 
Uh, for multiple reasons, you know, mostly for defense, because, you know, the longer your arms, the more effective you'll be defensively, regardless of your position. You know, if you have long arms and you're a guard, you're going to be able to intercept and deflect more passes out on the perimeter. If you're a big man, it'll help you block shots. It'll help you get closer to rebounds. And, you know, today there seems, you know, the traditional center position has changed so much and been devalued so much. There's so many small ball teams playing. But, you know, the most of these small ball teams that have, you know, a, like I said, a relatively small center compared to the traditional centers, you know, not a seven foot or guy who's six, eight, maybe playing center. They all have one thing in common. They all have very long arms. They may be only six, eight playing against seven footers, but they all have freakish, like seven, three, seven, four wingspan. So five, six uh, inches, you know, longer you know, because uh, uh, the average person, the average person, you know, his wingspan is usually the exact same as his height. So if you're six feet tall, your, you know, your your wingspan, you know, your arms like this will expand, will be six feet two. Uh, to have plus two, plus three, plus four is, you know, not a common. Most people, the average person, it's plus one, uh, if not, you know, just equal to your to your height. Anyway, so that's the thing. And then obviously, you know, uh, just his body type, you know, scouting young kids, it's very important. I mean, your average 16, 70 year old is going to be really skinny. So sometimes you see these kids that I say, oh my God, this kid is so skinny. He looks anorexic or he looks like, you know, a child, you know, from uh, an impoverished African country who's dying of starvation. Oh my God, you know, poor thing. But you have to remember, you know, like, hey, you know, I was skinny too when I was, you know, uh, 15. Um, you know, some, like I said, some guys, you know, are late bloomers, they have a late growth spurt, or like I said, they have a growth spurt and they grow, but like I said, they, they just, you know, grow in height, but you know, they're, they don't have any much muscle, you know, uh, so the thing is I look at, you know, is obviously, you know, even if a kid's very skinny though, it's a different, you know, if he has a very narrow frame, that's a red flag. That's an alert. Cause that means if, you, if you're skinny and you have a narrow frame, you're never going to be very strong. You know, you can put all the muscle you want, but if you have a small frame. But if a guy is skinny, yes, really thin, but he has very broad shoulders, you know, that's that's, that's something I have to notice. Say, okay, I don't, I won't worry about his strength now because he has broad shoulders. As soon as he gets to a weight room or just continues his natural growth spurt, he's going to add muscle and mass regardless. It just goes, you know, with, you know, his uh, growing so that's, that's, you know, that's what Yanis did, wasn't it? He came into the league very slight, but if you look at the difference of him now, slight, like, yeah, he's day. now he's, you know, just Mr. Muscle. I mean, you know, just, you know, just chiseled uh, uh, muscles, you know, just, you know, all over, all over, like I said, just, uh, he can be a bodybuilder, you know, or a bodybuilding competition now. Anyway, so, you know, these are other things. Like I said, you have to project, you know, I'll be repeating this a lot during our conversation. Scouting, among other things, among the many things as well, projecting. Because, you know, evaluating what you see and what is now, but also projecting if and how that can change in the future. And obviously getting back to body types. So, you know, if, like I said, a 16-year-old is really skinny, but he has broad shoulders, that's good. That means it's, you know, most likely that he's going to fill out. At the same time, though, you know, you find guys that were early, early developers. You know, you find a 16-year-old kid who looks like a man, you know, he's got muscles, he's, you know, big, strong, and he's got a beard. He's been shaving since he was 13 years old. You know, I myself, you know, I've, I'm six feet, I'm six two, I'm six two, one meter 89. 
I've been this tall since I was 13. I haven't grown an inch height-wise since I was 13. I put on put on weight, put on muscle, and not just muscle, <laughs> some fat too. But uh, you know, I was shaving when I was in middle school. The other most of my other you know, other kids were not. They were still little kids. I was already I was. You know, at age 13, I was a, a man among children. Unfortunately, though, I didn't grow. You know, I was playing center and I was dominating. But a couple of years later, the kids that I was dominating against now, they're suddenly 6'6", six, 6'7", six, 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 But three years ago, they were 5'10". You know what I mean? So projecting, you know, just the body type. You know, like I said, a guy, it's very common that I'll see a guy at 60 who just dominates because he's physically superior to others. And two years later, Two years later, not 10 years later, two years later, suddenly he's just average playing against the same players, the same team, same competition, the same national team competition. You know, it's funny, the European under 16 competition, it's always interesting to compare the, you know, the what happened with the same group. Because what I find is that, you know, there'll be new players, but there's often a nucleus, you know, a, a core group of players from any age group in any country and any national team that is going to be the same you know, forever. It's interesting to see which players, you know, improve between age 16 and 18 and which players are the same. You know, it often happens that you know, the guy who was the best player at the European U16, two years later, he's not the best player anymore. You know, his backup who grew five inches or put on 20 pounds uh, or like I just matured and improved and everything is now better uh, than he was. That's Anthony Davis is like that, isn't he? He started off as a, well, he was a point guard and then all of a sudden grew so much and he's got the handling and ball skills equatable yeah. to a lot of yeah. point guards, but actually he's in a, what, seven footer frame, six, eleven frame. Yeah, in most cases, whenever you see a seven footer who can face up and, you know, has, you know, uh, wing skills, not guard skills, it was typically a guy who had a late growth spurt, you know, so he was playing, you know, Maybe not point guard, but he was a wing player. So, you know, he had those, you know, uh, face-up ball handling skills. And then suddenly he kept growing and uh, went from being, you know, a uh, shooting guard to to being a power forward, if not a center. So that's, you know, much more, it's more common, you know, than, than people think. And it's, it's, it's a great advantage. I mean, you know, like I said, I got, I got gypped. You know, I had my early growth spurt and that was the end of it. You know, I never, I never improved. So anyways, so... As I said, and then obviously athleticism factor, you know, scouting for the NBA, especially, you know, like I said, I shouldn't be, you know, too biased because, you know, I have to look at the whole package, but obviously if a guy, regardless of his height, is not athletic, that's going to be a handicap. That's going to be a major obstacle. I won't write him off, but that's one of the most important things I said, you know, he has very average athleticism for his position at the NBA level or for the college level or for the pro level, you know, when you're playing at the youth level, it may not be a factor because if you're taller or if you're simply better, you know, you'll still be able to, you know, uh, to, to stand out and dominate. But, you know, once you move up, you know, if you're not a great athlete, you know, especially, especially if you're a guard or a wing player, that's going to be a major obstacle. You know, it's just like, how do you assess that? Because, Obviously, you look at someone like Luka Doncic, I, I haven't seen a lot of footage of him in Europe, but I'd imagine in Europe he would have been physically pretty good, whereas, you know, he could go across to the NBA and actually there'll be other athletes similar to Giannis who are unbelievable. So how do you go around judging and what criteria do you use to say, OK, he's very good athletically here, but 
at the NBA level, he'll be average or he's average here. And that's going to be a massive red flag when he does go to the NBA. What, what do you see? What do your eyes tell you? It's, it's, it's not often not a specific thing. It's often just, well, I mean, like I said, I've been doing this for many years. Certain things you just notice. And it's, you know, obviously, obviously even in warmups, you know, maybe this one guy's doing, you know, windmill uh, slam dunks, you know, uh, highlight reel slam dunk contest dunks. I mean, okay, this guy's a leaper. That I'll need to put in my notes. Um, but once again, you know, it's not one thing I learned when I first started scouting, I thought meeting an athlete was meant jumping. That's not necessarily true. Sure. Sure. You know, jumping is important, but be a great athlete. You know, I, there are a lot of guys who I often label as good athletes vertically, but average athletes laterally. That is much more important. So, you know, like I said, I have to look at, you know, how they play. Most, more often than not, their uh, athletic shortcomings will be more obvious on defense because especially, you know, for wing players, you know, if they're not quick laterally, quickness is often more important than sheer athleticism. You know, having quick reflexes, quick feet is just as important, if not more important, than being, you know, just a flat-out freak athlete who can fly, you know, and dunk over people. Um, you say the Luka Doncic now. Luka Doncic, though, obviously, no, he was not. He was not. He was not a. He is not a great athlete. He's not a great athlete. But that has not been a much of a limit because he's Luka Doncic. Luka Doncic is an outlier. He's an exception. You know, obviously, when he was 16 and dominating, not just against you know his peers, but already, you know, uh, holding his own at the pro level. It was obviously because it was because though he's Luka Doncic, he was an exceptionally mature young man, uh, exceptionally you know talented player. And the one thing he did have though, he had incredible size for his position, and that compensated. You know, he didn't have to dunk over people. He was a six eight ball handler. He just had to bully his way to the rim. He didn't have to dunk over people, pull by them. They couldn't stop him from getting to the rim. You know, physically. You know, he didn't have to you know beat them off the dribble. He just overpowered them. And that has worked even in the NBA, too. That, no, that was not a given, to be honest with you. I was afraid that he would have trouble creating for himself as well as finishing at the rim. But, you know, that has not <laughs> has not been a problem. Just with Luka is Luka. He just has certain antics. But I know a lot of guys that had Luka Doncic game, you know, six, seven, six, eight ball handlers who, you know, would post up, you know, every other guard. But... As good as they were, they didn't have Luca's ability to, you know, uh, adapt to, you know, different types of defenders. And, you know, maybe they would still be good for the yearling, but they're not, you know, good good enough for the NBA, perhaps. And going so, back to what you, you said around the lateral quickness, just using that as an example, is there any particular moments in a game where you can go, right, this is really going to highlight it? So if I look at it from a football perspective, because obviously I've got more experience in that, I'd be able to see someone's footwork in a 1v1 scenario out wide on the pitch because you've got a winger running at the player and they have to shift their feet. So for you, is there any particular moment in a game where you can look at them and go, right, their lateral speed will be tested here. So if I focus in really on this moment, this is going to give me a good identifier to what their lateral quickness looks like. Uh, I mean, once again, sometimes it's a specific thing. Sometimes I just, you know, see that. Obviously, you know, over the course of a game, if a guy gets beat off the dribble, that's a bad, bad sign. I don't even go so much into the analysis of how quick he is laterally. It's obvious 
you know, people are getting by him. So either he's not a great athlete laterally, he's not a good defender. Um, and, you know, obviously, obviously, and also look at the opponents, you know, who's playing against, you know, if you're playing against a guy, you know, if you're a big guard and you're facing a smaller player who's super quick though, you know, and I, and it's, that's obvious and you manage to stay in front of them. Obviously that means that your lateral quickness is, you know, good enough. Uh, so it also, you know, depends on who you're playing against. You know, like I said, if you're, you know, if you're, if you're, if you, you know, if a guy's, I'll often write this, you know, a guy who has average athleticism, all right, he did a great job defensively today. He played hard, he was focused. He stayed in front of his man, but he did not guard a single guy today who was a good athlete. Then maybe the next game he's going to be facing, you know, a veteran American player who's a really good one-on-one player and a really good athlete. And suddenly he starts to struggle. You know what I mean? That's why you see guys more than once. You know, sometimes a guy will have a bad game, but he's a good player. And sometimes a guy will have a great game, but, you know, he's not as good as he looked because he was playing against, you know, a bad team or the guy he was guarding, you know, was you know not very good or for whatever reason. So, you know, that's another reason to see guys, you know, more often, uh, as often as you can. And um, anyways, so like I said, I spent a lot of time, you know, just analyzing the physical characteristics, both, you know, just the visual ones, you know, just, you know, does the guy pass the eye test? And then the physical implications, like I said, you know, is he athletic? How is he athletic? Laterally, vertically, both. Um, And, you know, just, and then after, after that, I get more into, you know, the game specific. So what does he do on the court? Usually when I say player, I mean, the first part of the game, I just focus on him offensively because I need to see what he can do. You know, I leave, I always joke that, you know, I'm better at evaluating players on offense than on defense, but that's, like I said, that's why you see players more than once because, you know, I admit it, I admit it when I first see a player, I look at what his offense, you know, his defense, like, how was he defensive? Like, eh, you know, I didn't really pay much attention that day, but I'll pay more attention tomorrow when I see him again or next week when I see him again or I'll watch some video on him, you know, in one-on-one situations and stuff like that. So I need to see what he can do for me. You know, if he has what his strengths are, you know, on the offensive end and if that, and also if that strength is something that translates, you know, you'll find a guy in Europe perhaps who's a great all-around scorer. He can hit the three-pointer, he can drive, he can go one-on-one, he can get to the rim. But often it's like, you know, I don't know if he can get to the rim and finish that way at the NBA level. At the NBA level, he may just be a shooter, which means he's going to play in a different way. He's just going to stand out on the perimeter, become a catch-and-shoot guy and wait for the ball to be kicked out to him, you know, so he can you know, shoot it, which is fine. I mean, there's a premium on shooters today, you know, uh, regardless of position, you know, being able to shoot from three-point range is a must you know, for any position now, pretty much, um, you know, more. And you know, so obviously that's something that is very important to, to look at. Does, what does he do here and what will this translate to a higher level competition? Yes, no. And, you know, and, uh, and accordingly that will you know, influence my final evaluation. Um, it's also, like I said, very important, you know, today's characteristics, you know, back in the day, you know, if you were our play position four or five, being able to shoot from outside was not important. In fact, you didn't want your big man. You wanted your big man to stay in the low post and, you know, mix up and, you know, power the ball to the rim. 
today it's the opposite. You know, like I said, 20 years ago, if a guy could shoot a three, if a seven footer could shoot a three pointer, that was irrelevant. It was like, yeah, he has a nice shooting touch. Who cares? You know, we don't want him to shoot three pointers. He's seven feet tall. Today it's like ah, this guy, you know, he's got great low post moves. You know, he's got a great high jump hook and this, you know, reverse move, reverse pivot. But it's like if he can't shoot though from I'm not saying three point range, but if he can't shoot from, you know, mid range, that's a problem today. You know, uh, so the game has changed even in that aspect, you know, things that I was looking at, you know, giving more importance one day today are less important things that I gave less importance to the specific example, you know, a big man's shooting range today is very, very important. You know, there's, you know, today I have to label if you're a big man, traditional center, or modern big man, stretch big man, who can help stretch the floor. This is a huge distinction today, fundamental. It's one of the first questions that I'm asked when I'm talking about a player. You know, can he shoot it from the perimeter? If he's a big man, can he stretch it? If he's a guard, can he score off the dribble with a pull-up? Or is he simply a guy that, you know, needs to have his feet set and needs to have the ball, you know, pass to him, you know, running off a screen? These are all very important things to look at. You know, the player, and obviously some are generic, you know, can he shoot it? Yes or no, which is important regardless of the position. And others, though, position specific, you know, big man, is he a post-up big man or face-up big man or just a rim runner, somebody who's going to get most of his points, you know, just off pick and rolls and cuts to the basket. Um, is he a guy that can, you know, for guards, can he create his own shots? Uh, can he create for others? Or is he a guy who's going to be dependent, you know, on, you know, screens and, you know, uh, people, you know, finding him at the right time in the right position. So, like I said, you know, just, you know, both various types of aspects of, you know, what I can do offensively. And, um, you know, and also, you know, passing skills. These are the things, you know, guys, his decision-making, this is obviously more important with guards than big men, but, you know, just, you know, something like I said, does he force plays? Does he make the right play? You know, uh, when he shoots the ball, was there maybe an opportunity where he had uh, one of his teammates was in a better position, but, you know, he was being selfish. You know, these are all things, you know, his shot selection that I look at. You know, he's, like I said, is he a good passer? Is he a selfish player? Is he a team player? And, you know, and the same thing goes for defense. You know, obviously, first I have to look, you know, from an individual standpoint on defense. You know, number one, does he stay in front of his man? Um, and he also in a team frame. So yeah, he stays in front of his man, but he's oblivious to what's happening around him. You know, he never helps, you know, his teammates, you know, he just stays on his own man to make sure his own man doesn't score, all uh, things like that. You know, as we talked about, you know, you know, lateral mobility, lateral quickness, how important that, you know, today, another, you know, fundamental thing for big men is can he switch onto a smaller player? If a big man can't switch today, that, he probably can't be an NBA player. He may be good enough to be a Euro pro player. He may be a good college player. But if, you, if you're if you a big man and you can't defend a smaller player, you know, after a switch, that's a huge obstacle. That's usually a deal breaker, you know, uh, at least for a guy, you know, who's maybe not for a 16-year-old kid, but certainly a guy who's 19, 20. If you can't switch, you know, if you're a seven foot and you can't switch onto a smaller player at age 20, you're never going to be able to. That's not something. You learn either you have the physical characteristics to do that uh, or, or you don't. Just so, on that, so obviously, and this leads into the next question, when you're projecting for players, 
obviously there may be some skills they don't currently possess, but you think actually they have the capabilities to be taught it. So how do you go around projecting that? Like I look at someone like Kawhi Leonard, for example, he came in not having a particularly good three point range from college, but then we, he got did a lot of work at San Antonio where now he's quite good at it. There'll be other players, like you mentioned, the switch inside as centres, someone like Serge Ibaka potentially, that probably has the physical characteristics to be able to switch, but maybe hasn't had hasn't had a lot of success with it or hasn't had a lot of opportunity to be trained it. So how do you go around projecting individuals that you think they don't currently do this, but from what I've seen, I believe X, Y, and Z would lend itself to being taught that at the next level and being able to do it well? Yeah. Well, as you said, you made a good example of Kawhi Leonard, as a matter of fact. So yeah, that's, like I said, that's one of the most important, you know, uh, jobs of a scout to be able to project, you know, uh, many, many things, whether it's a specific skill uh, or how, you know, you know, his game will translate to the, you know, to higher level competition or how he will fit into a certain team specific system. Um, you know, obviously certain characteristics. Yeah. You know, if you're, if you're flat footed and slow, that's, you can't be taught to become, you know, a freak athlete, you know, either you have, or, you know, now you can improve your body, you can become stronger and certainly, you know, working on your footwork, and you know, adding more strength to your bodies, your, your your legs, you can become a better runner. You can become quicker, but there's only so much you can do. Uh, another thing, though, sometimes you're going to find a guy who has physical characteristics. Oh, this guy's an athlete. He can jump. He can move, but he doesn't play hard. You know what I mean? So that's another thing. Evaluating, you know, players, you know, just his will, you know, his tenacity, his toughness, and you know, his motor. Uh, no, but anyways, like I said, you know, projecting, like I said, it's not an exact science. Uh, you know, I go a lot by experience too, and sometimes I'm wrong, but you know, sometimes it's a, just a gut feeling. Um, you know, like I said, you just try to have to look to see, you know, things like shooting, for example, is one of the most common things that you can improve and correct. You know, you may never be able to, you know, dunk from the free throw line, no matter how much you work on your legs and all but you know stuff like shooting and you know like i said just playing hard defense boxing out uh you know a guy a big man who's an average rebounder can become a better rebounder simply just by you know teaching him to you know his mindset teaching him to box out you know just instinctively body up to an opponent and to go after the ball rather than to wait for the ball to bounce in his direction eventually so those are things that you know you can teach to some degree um, but, you know, like I said, then there are other factors, just like, you know, the players, you know, will and his, you know, will to, to work and to fight for the, to fight for the ball. You know, a thing I look at, you know, is, you know, guy, when there's a 50, we call them 50, 50 balls, you know, a ball that bounces in your direction, but there's another player there on average, how many, do you, how often do you get the ball when you have to fight for it, you know, with another player, you know, how often do you get a rebound? that didn't bounce in your direction and bounce closer to your opponent, but you still managed to get because you anticipated and you jumped and you ran towards the ball with great energy. So, you know, once again, these are things that uh, are not an exact science, you know, uh, and even the position, you know, of, of players is something, you know, obviously it's very common that, you know, a guy is going to, you know, play inside because he's the tallest guy on his team growing up, but, you know, 
he may have to become more of a wing player at the pro level if he wants to play at the pro level. So you have to see, okay, you know, Kawhi Leonard. Kawhi Leonard played, you know, position four in, at San Diego State. But, you know, he was already he had great lateral movement. He was an athlete. He had great defensive, you know, versatility and capacity. You know, the Spurs saw something, you know, worst case, they thought worst case scenario, this guy is going to become a great wing defender, a guy that can defend, you know, help pressure the ball as well as, you know, guard, you know, bigger players uh, as well. And we're going to work on a shot. And if that improves, we've got a starter here. If that doesn't improve, no, we've got a guy that's a rotation player. You know, that was, I'm guessing that was kind of their mindset there. Because like I said, Kawhi Leonard is not the player he was when he first came into the league. His game has evolved and changed radically and he's improved a lot in part through hard work, um, in part because of his physical talents, but, you know, certainly it's been a process. It didn't happen overnight. And like I said, so, yeah, projecting that, you know, is very important. And also, you know, it's like today more and more NBA teams are putting a premium on player development. They're hiring more coaches who are specialized in working with players, you know, after practice uh, in the off season, you know, on improving specific aspects of their game, whether it's their footwork, post-up work, their shooting touch, their ball handling, or just you know, working on their body. And, you know, that's, like I said, a very important thing. You know, when I, I was fortunate to work for teams that, you know, had a premium on player development. So I was always thinking, you know, you know, this guy, he's not a very good shooter, but he does everything else well. I'm sure that if he comes to us and he works with our shooting coach, he's going to become a good enough shooter to play the position or to be, you know, to be on the floor. So that's, you know, another very important, just uh, kind of, you know, put in the appropriate context, you know, for your team's, you know, specific needs and in culture and the place where the team is. Like I said, you know, if you're out playing for a team that's fighting for the championship, you need to sign guys that can play today. If you're a team that's rebuilding and you're four years from being able to, you know, be a playoff team, you can say, you know what, this kid, he's a late bloomer. He's, you know, uh, I don't know, maybe he's not going to become as good as I hope, but he's got a huge, you know, a huge upside, you know, a very high ceiling. Uh, that this is, you know, the type of guy that you take a chance on if circumstances, you know, permit, permit it. Uh, that's, that's really interesting. So now, obviously, you're link, linking it to the handing it over to the, the team itself. So if you talk about that evaluation piece, you've obviously gone and you've done all your contextual information, you've watched a player however many times, or what does your actual report look like? So in terms of a template, if you could just break it down for us, like what subheadings are there? Obviously, you've gone through a little bit in terms of what detail it is, but is it very structured or is it really open-ended and you just write what you see? Yeah, it, it depends. You know, I've changed my scouting, you know, my scouting way, my scouting formats over the years. And when I was working for professional teams, they usually would have a template of some sort to follow. It didn't necessarily have to be, you know, ad verbatim, but, you know, to try to, just as a reference, um, but every team was different. And I can tell you, you know, one, you know, some teams I worked for were super detail oriented, analytical, and they, you know, in addition to my scouting report parts, there would be then a series of, you know, all questions to answer. There'd be a drop down menu in the website database where I would, you know, paste and copy my game report, but then I would have to complete a series of you know, questions, some were like drop down questions or evaluate on a one to five scale, perhaps. 
um, certain specific characteristics of the player. So every team was different. Um, you know, some teams that I work for, they just wanted to be as synthetic as possible. They wanted bottom line. Jason, give me, you know, his, uh, based on what you saw, give me his strengths and his weaknesses. And overall, what do you think he can be? Is he an NBA player? Yes or no? If so, why and what could he do specifically for us? Other teams, there was just, you know, a million questions. It would take me 45 minutes, you know, per report, you know, where with the other team, it would take me five to 10 minutes. So every team is different. Uh, usually though, personally, how I like to structure things, once again, this is how I would do my essay part of the report. Then, like I said, if my team required me to answer then other specific questions in a different format, um, I would do so, but my way of work, you know, now that I'm just doing my own thing and I don't have to, you know, worry about putting it in a format for someone else, I pretty much simply do this. I divide it into either physical characteristics, the very first thing, physical characteristics, physical traits, then offense, defense, and then an overall summary of what I saw, as well as a projection of the player. So, okay, this guy, you know, he's having a great season, but he played poorly today, but I still like him because, and then I'll say, I think this guy's an NBA player and he's a first rounder or a second rounder. And then something also specifically just to sum it up, uh, his characteristics, you know, for the NBA, projected role in the NBA, or at least projected role for our team, you know, uh, defender, passer, shooter, scorer, rebounder, you know, obviously have multiple characteristics. So ultimately it was basically, like I said, physical characteristics, offense, defense, and then kind of an overall summary uh, where I would, you know, specify, you know, what role he would have in the NBA, or at least on the team I was working for, or also, you know, just even simpler, simply strength and weaknesses, and then an overall, you know, uh, projection, you know, based on that. So those are pretty much the two, the two main templates, if you may, that I have used and continue to use, whether it's, you know, visual or just kind of, you know, the, my, the logic that I follow, physical characteristics, offense, defense, you know, even if I don't label, you know, and put bullets, pretty much there's a logical progression to my report. You know, it makes sense. It's not just a random list of things. And I have a lot of, a lot of scouts, older, <coughs> older scouts, they're very informal. They just write a bunch of broken sentences, you know, good shooter, you know, a good team defender, poor one-on-one -on -one defender, very synthetic, but often those are the best ones because they get to the point. Quantity is not more, you know, is not the thing. It's quality that's, that's important. But the most important thing though, uh, Michael, is not that the most important aspect of my scouting reports and what I do and see is the intel part, you know, the information. Yeah, of course, the scouting report is the main product, but the most important thing is the, you know, the the separate intel report, which, you know, no matter how good a guy was and is and is going to project to be, if I get bad intel on him, if I get bad information about him, about him being a bad guy, not being a hard worker, having, you know, some personal issues, whether they're you know, not his fault or not, but you know, hey, sure, a guy that comes from a broken family, you know, it's not like in Hollywood movies where, you know, the guy from the rough background that made him tougher and made him work harder. Yeah, 
sometimes that happens. Happened with Giannis, having a rough, you know, childhood and poverty probably helped him becoming what he is today, motivated him. But for a lot of you know young men, unfortunately, that's becomes you know an, uh, an obstacle that they can't get over, no matter how talented they are. It's going to come to the surface. So before you com- before you commit twenty, thirty, forty, fifty million dollars to a guy, you want to know what type of guy this is off the court. You know, if he's a guy who's going to hang with the wrong crowd, a guy whose parents were alcoholics, the chances that he becomes an alcoholic are higher than an average person. This is just an example. You know, things, I'm not going to say, oh, we can't sign him because his dad was an alcoholic. No, but you're going to be worried about that. You know, does he drink though? You know, oh, only socially. Okay, but you maybe, you know what? Maybe four years, not five years. That's the type of, you know, Thing. So the intel is fundamental, and that is something, you know, I have tons of people, oh, hi, Jason, you know, oh, you, I, I heard, I, you know, I read about you, you know, nice to meet you, you I know you've been, I want to become a scout too, um, you know, uh, what can I do? And I say, well, listen, you know, I can give them all the advice I want, but I'll tell them this, knowing basketball is not what's going to get you hired. Yeah, you need to know basketball, but being able to get information other people got that can't get is what is going to get you the job long term you know your scouting reports may be the best the most detailed the most accurate accurate the best predictions but if you can't then get personal information on the player to corroborate that it's all useless because like i said you know if, if a guy is you know uh, a bad guy a guy who's a bad teammate a guy who's not a hard worker who cares if he's a good player you know we're not going to sign him I'm not going to, or at least we're not going to offer him 50 million. Yeah, maybe we're offering less than that for two years, but we're not going to give him five years, you know, 50 million. We'll give him two years, five million, maybe, maybe. Uh, so these are really important things. And that's the hard thing. The network, networking is fundamental. You know, once again, a young man who starts scouting, he's going to find himself, you know, having problems creating that network. You know, like I said, you know, people think that, oh, I watch a lot of basketball. I love basketball. I know basketball. I can analyze players. Great. That's a good start. But if you can't then corroborate that and complement that with the information on the player off the court, it's useless. I mean, a team won't hire you if you can't provide that information. I always like to say I am not the best scout in the world. I think I'm good enough because I've been living on it for many years. But my, uh, you know, my my main asset, I have always believed, and most of my employers agreed with me, my main asset was my intel. He said, I'm not going to say I'm a better scout than the guy you have now, but I will say I will give you better personal information than the scout you have now. That may be presumption on my part, but that was my pride. And, you know, what I took pride, pride in, I, that was where I felt I had a competitive advantage because of my networking and the fact that I knew so many people in basketball for so many years that I was and would be able to get more information than the next person than the other scouts because like i said i know, I know a lot of people more people than most other scouts people from, you know, from many different countries different cultures and also that had a relationship that people will give me exact information because sure not all intel sources are as good as others you know some guys they'll be the, oh jay sure hey hey can i ask you oh sure jason no problem ask me anything you want about this kid but in the end, you know, they're going to say, oh, no, he's a great kid. Just don't worry about him. He's a hard worker. And I'm not saying they're going to lie to me, 
but sometimes they're not objective. Sometimes they're not objective because, you know, they're like a parent, you know, they've been coaching this kid since he was a kid. So yeah, they really know this kid well. They've known him since, but they're not objective. They're almost like a parent, you know, saying, oh, it's a great kid, you know, he works so hard. And, you know, maybe he's a good guy, but maybe he doesn't work that hard. He works, you know what I mean? Or in some cases, extreme cases, you know, a team, you know, yeah, the guy's good, but he's, you know, uh, he's a total a-hole. But they don't, can't tell me that because they've been given orders. Listen, people think this guy is better than he is. And, you know, if he's drafted in the first round by the NBA, we're going to get a two million euro buyout. You tell them that he's a great guy. You know, the fact what happened at the club last week, no one should know that, you know. So I need guys that can tell me, listen, Jason, he's not a bad kid, but he's gotten in trouble with the law because of this and that. I need to know that information, you know. Is that where having a network helps? Because maybe if you can't go directly to that team, you might know someone in a neighbouring town or neighbouring team that will know, for example, that will go, actually, listen, we play against this kid or we've got a kid, a guy that's come across and he's told us this and oh, yeah, absolutely. having that network of going, can I corroborate this story in two or three different areas? They might not come from the team or the horse's mouth, so to speak, but actually I'm getting a picture from everyone else around it that this is one we need to consider. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's you know exactly how it is. You know, like I said, that's why having many sources, you know, if I, you know, if the first guy I asked says something good about him, I don't stop there. It's like, Oh, no problem. This guy's a great guy. No, I asked more people. And likewise, if somebody says something bad about him, it's not like, Oh no, it's a red flag. We can't take it. You know, I was thinking more sources, but obviously I give more importance to, you know, somebody who says something bad about him. And there are different types of bad though. You know, Hey, Maybe, maybe the guy's biased. Hey, you know, maybe the, the kid was dating the coach's you know, daughter and, you know, the coach doesn't like him for the wrong. So he's, you know, he's not going to fly out live and say, ah, you know, this kid is not serious. You know, it's talented, but, you know, I just don't like him, you know, but, you know, maybe for personal reasons. I mean, that example I made is actually a very realistic example, by the way. Um, but, you know, things like that, you know, just, you know, players, you know, going out and, you know, a thing. That's also, you know, so you know, a guy, you know, likes to go out at night and party. That's you have to take into you know, consideration. That doesn't mean though that you know all the guys that stay at home are good guys, because maybe a guy stays at home, but he's when he's lonely, he drinks and gets drunk. You know, uh, just like the guy that goes out all the time doesn't mean that he's a wild party animal, because yeah, he goes out, but he doesn't go out the day before the game. You know what I mean? You know, he's very professional. Yeah, after a big win, he's gonna go out and you know, probably drink and have a party and have, you know, women and whatever. Uh, just you have to take that into to, to perspective. You know, like I said, it's... So this, this goes on to my next question. I think it's quite a point in time to go into it. Is how does each team have different either characteristics that they look for, cultural fit? So if we're talking like a player there, if, if you get drafted by Oklahoma or you get drafted by the New York Knicks. They're two very, very different environments to be in. And for an individual who might have some challenges if he's able to go out till six, seven o'clock in the morning, that might be way more achievable without getting caught in New York than it is in OKC. So from your experience, how different is what each organization, each institution that is looking for and how much does that affect then the players you're recommending are both I guess both on court and off court in this scenario uh well it definitely affects it a lot more than you would think actually 
and it's both, you know, both the, you know, on-court aspect as well as the off-court aspect. You know, obviously, you know, on court, you know, on the court, you know, the, each team has specific needs that are relative to, you know, the current, you know, uh, you know, level of talent of their team to the current state. Are they contenders? Are they rebuilding? Are they a veteran team? Are they a young team? Um, you know, so like I said, you know, adding a, you know, if you're a championship team, you want guys that contribute immediately. If you're a team that's rebuilding, you're fine with, you know, drafting a kid and stashing him in Europe or bringing him over, having the D league, you know, for a year, you know, they're open to that, you know, Oklahoma city is the right place to send a young guy who's not ready. For example, uh, you know, Milwaukee, Phoenix, and the Lakers, they want guys that can play today. You know, they prefer, you know, a guy who's ready or maybe they want to draft a European kid, but they'll draft a European, you know, 26 year old veteran guy because they think this guy can come off the bench immediately, for example. And, you know, and then obviously the way the team plays, you know, in Miami, my, Miami, I consulted for Miami, so I know their organization very well. And, um, you know, they, like I said, if a guy, you know, wasn't a hard worker, you know, a tough guy, a guy that, put his defense, they wouldn't take him. They, it was like, it was a deal breaker. They wouldn't even think like, oh, we'll teach him. No, if we have to teach him that, we're in trouble. You know, he has to come, if he has one thing, he has to be a tough. Other teams, they wouldn't care. They say, hey, this guy's talented. Who cares if he doesn't play defense? Or, hey, you know, we got a good group here. We're going to teach him. We're going to give him some structure, which, you know, I personally think is probably the best way to go about it. But every team you know, is different. And, you know, obviously certain teams like to play, you know, some teams like to play fast. You know, uh, if you have a co, you know, Mike D'Antoni, you know, before all the teams were shooting three pointers and, uh, you know, playing small ball, you know, when Mike D'Antoni's teams were the first teams to do that routinely, obviously I didn't work for Phoenix, but, you know, uh, the scout of Phoenix, I'm sure that he, you know, he wouldn't be recommending a traditional, old school big man low post player to the Phoenix Suns of that era. They wanted, you know, guys that were fast, that could run and that, you know, could face up and shoot it. You know, they don't want a point guard who was just a great slasher. He was not a good three point shooter. He wasn't a guy for them. He needed to be also a good three point shooter, you know, in addition to being a slasher. So, you know, the style of the team's game is very important also. Uh, ultimately though, the number one thing that counts is the culture though. And I've worked for many different NBA teams and, you know, you know, a lot of them, yeah, sure. They, a lot of them look for some of the same things, but at the same time, a lot of them also have very different parameters and some teams, like I said, you know, put more of a premium, you know, on Intel, on, you know, just the personal, the players, your personal characteristics. And sometimes, you know, it was just the GM had a different philosophy. Sometimes it was the team's culture that it just permeated you know, the team and that was the way it has been always there. You know, uh, like I said, you know, in, in San Antonio, if you don't fit your culture, they're not going to draft you or sign you. Same with Miami. Um, teams like the Knicks, though, for example, you know, they only care if you're a good player, if you have to start quality. Sure, if you're a drug dealer, you know, they wouldn't want to take you, but you, they would grant you a lot of leeway, you know, from on a personal level. Because, uh, like I said, for them, it would be more important just if you can play. So that's what I've learned. You know, every team had the, has a different culture. And like I said, it was it was interesting just the types of questions that I would be asked when I was consulting for multiple teams. That some, they only wanted intel. They didn't ask me a single characteristic, can this guy shoot or not? Either because they already read my report 
or they did their own reports and what I wrote would just corroborate, you know, what they had already seen themselves. What they wanted to know is, you know, what makes this guy tick. So we'd spend hours on the phone talking about non-basketball things. I mean, not, you know, on the court things, just, you know, uh, do you think that, you know, this is a guy, he's a small city kid. Yeah, he's a good kid, according to all sources, but is he going to be, you know, how's he going to react to the bright lights of Miami and LA and New York? stuff like that because you know that's that's very important especially when you have to make these huge commitments multi-year commitments you know you know the nba they 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 honor their contracts you know it's not like european teams where you know oh the guy the team's losing we're not gonna pay anybody or you know the guy isn't playing well he missed the practice you know you're not gonna get paid this month you know nba teams you know they'll leave the lawyers you know that that work to the lawyers but teams will pay so, you know, that's, that's very important. So, you know, the cultural differences, you know, are what I work for many, many, many NBA teams and with all due respect to the other teams I've worked for, because they all, you know, I've met great people. I was fortunate enough to associate with some great people from many, many teams, but I have to say the two teams that I've consulted with uh, over the years, and I've seen this, you know, continue today, just, you know, from afar, the two teams that I think have the best culture are the Miami Heat and the San Antonio Spurs. Uh, that's no disrespect to the other teams, but I just think that those two teams, they have something that it's, it's intangible, you know, you just have to be there to experience, to understand it. But there's a reason that, you know, San Antonio was good for so many years, that Miami always seems to be competitive. You know, they have an off year every year or two, but they managed to rebuild very, very quickly. You know, you know, when LeBron left, you know, a couple of years ago, the team struck for a couple of years, but now Miami is back, you know, to being a, a power, you know, in the NBA. And that goes to the, to the culture there that Pat Riley has created. You know, like I said, they know what they're doing. They want players that fit a certain mold, both on and off court. And, you know, it's not a coincidence, like I said, Miami, you know, others, you know, people that work with Miami said, Jason, though, if he's not a tough guy, Pat you can't work with Pat Riley. And it's true though. I mean, you know, to work with Pat Riley, you have to be a tough guy both on and off the court. Tough, mentally tough to be able to take the hard work that they demand from you, you know, in practice, you know, working on your game, spending extra time as well as what they expect you from in the game. And also being able to, you know, take criticism, pressure, you know, both from, you know, the coaching staff and just from the, you know, the, uh, you know, the, the city, just, you know, the, the pressure that comes from paying for this, you know, teams that have a certain tradition. And, you know, San Antonio, just, you know, San Antonio is probably, you know, whereas Miami has been always a very close-knit group, they've had the same group of managers and scouts forever. You know, San Antonio has spread out a lot because, you know, the San Antonio, the famous San Antonio coaching and management tree is a thing. I mean, you know, uh, so many scouts, uh, you know, managers, coaches, you know, in the NBA all started off with the San Antonio culture. And, you know, there was a joke going around the NBA that, you know, whenever a former San Antonio coach or manager got a, uh, you know, you know, an assistant coach of Popovich got a head coaching job or just got, you know, all the head coaching interviews, you know, for all vacancies or, you know, a uh, director of scouting suddenly got an offer to be the general manager of another team. We'd always joke, you know, if, you know, when I was looking for a job or 
a guy that was looking for, we'd always joke, said, you know, I'm going to put, I consulted for San Antonio for one year when I started with my scouting service. So, you know, I need to make people realize that, hey, I'm a San Antonio guy too, because it was almost, you know, I, I know a lot of, you know, today there's a lot of talk, you know, about, you know, well, fortunately, you know, racial aspects, you know, African-American coaches supposedly being overlooked. I don't want to go into that aspect uh, in any way, but there was a, there was a time when a lot of people more jokingly than not, but some were like, you know, there seems to be, there did seem to be a biased pro former San Antonio employees. So if you went to do a coaching interview, you were automatically on the front runner because you came from San Antonio. If you were the director of player personnel and you were interviewing for a general manager job with another team, more often than not, you would be the default front runner simply because you're from San Antonio. And you know, more often than not, these former San Antonio guys would get the job deservedly. Don't get me wrong, but you know, it's there. There was definitely, you know, a, a San Antonio culture factor. It's not a coincidence. I, think, I can mean, off the top of my head, I can think you've got Mike Budenhoser in Milwaukee, Sean Marks over in uh, Brooklyn. You've got obviously uh, Duco over in uh, Philadelphia. The guy, my uh, guy at Orlando. So you're 100 spot on. I just remember reading article after article going. Greg Popovich is looking for a new and it'd be like a year on year you'd lose two or three but listen we're, we're fastly approaching the time we set for this I'm going to ask you one last question which might be quite challenging but who is the um I'm trying to word this the right way who is the the most thorough scout that you've worked alongside and why oh gosh now that is a tough question because you know I I respect the work of you know uh of uh, most of my colleagues, you know, not all of them. Um, you know, I'd like to think though that now, you know, I know this is not the point of a question. I don't want to come off as being, you know, immodest though. I'd like to think that if you ask that question to another scout, that my name would pop up as being, uh, I'm taking you literally and not associating this sort of thing to being the most thorough with the best. I certainly consider myself to be very thorough very detail oriented that doesn't necessarily be the best but it certainly doesn't hurt to be very very thrilled and very you know focused on information but um like i said i've been fortunate to work with some you know some great guys uh so i'm probably also biased you know i have to say that all the people i work for i'm you know have a particular respect for the uh, guys i work with in uh in portland um who have gone on to bigger and better things um guy would be Chad Buchanan, who started off as a college scout when I was working as an international scout in Portland. And today he's the general manager of the Indiana Pacers. And he was actually the interim general manager of the Portland Trailblazers you know, while I was there for a while. Um, but, you know, he's, you know, one guy who just, you know, he had it all. He knew basketball. He was a very hard worker and, um, you know, uh, just understood, you know, the core values of how important, you know, it was to be a good person is just as much as, you know, it was important to be a good player and all. Uh, so that's one guy, you know, I worked with, you know, I think, you know, was, uh, was exceptional. And, um, you know, two more, you know, would be uh, uh, Chet Kammerer. Uh, Chet Cameron from the Miami Heat, who taught me so much when I first started. Miami was one of the first clients 
I had, and I did then also, you know, consult for them, you know, individually also. But when I had my scout instruments with my brother, they were one of the first uh, teams that uh, we had signed. So Chad Cameron, he's currently now, you know, he's kind of working behind the scenes. Um, he's a personal advisor of Pat Riley, but he was the director of scouting for Miami Heat for 20 years, basically, you know, when they when they won winning championships and all, you know, with Dwayne Wade and then uh, with uh, LeBron, when LeBron uh, joined also. So, you know, these are, um, these are two people that I think that, you know, are exceptional, you know, both as people and as scouts, because, you know, they taught me a lot, Chet, more just, you know, in general, because, you know, when I first started, he was, you know, took me under my wing, just like a big brother would do. And Chad, who was just, you know, brilliant, brilliant young guy who has, you know, had an incredible career, because like I said, he moved on very quickly from being, you know, his hard work paid off as he moved on from being, you know, an exceptional scout to becoming an exceptional manager also of an NBA team. Perfect. Listen, really appreciate your time. A real fascinating insight into the NBA scouting world and, and what it's like. So really appreciate your time and hope to catch up with you again soon. Absolutely. Absolutely. Definitely enjoyed this. We should do it again. Thanks for listening to the Sports Initiative podcast with me, Michael Wright. Please remember to follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at the Sports Initiative podcast and share this podcast with friends and family. I'll see you next week.